a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining our small but growing audience of wrong thinkers. People who are determined to get out there and ascertain the truth for themselves. To question the official narrative. To push back when necessary. And most importantly, to keep looking for truth, even if it's painful or even if it doesn't feel comforting in our ears. If you're one of those people, I welcome you to the show. want to mention that our sponsors include Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College, Pure Light, and HSL Ammo. And I have links to every one of those sponsors in today's show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Well, when I woke up this morning and I looked uh, at, at Facebook, one of the first posts that jumped out at me was from a friend who is a nurse who uh, just simply put, it's been one year today. I didn't even have to question one year today since what? You know, what happened? It was a year ago today that the craziness began in earnest. And I'm sincerely hoping that we've learned something, you know, in, in the uh, year that, uh, that has passed since last March 10th and, and today. But I want, you to just, I want you to just do a little mental exercise with me for a moment. And I know we've kind of grown used to some of the things which have become the, quote, new normal. But I want you to think for a moment about just how strange it was when you started to notice uh, the long lines outside of Costco and some of the big box stores, when you started to notice empty shelves in your own grocery stores. Remember when finding toilet paper was a thing, right? And then we were told, two weeks. Just lock this thing down for two weeks until we flatten the curve. It's been a year. It's been a year since we were told, two weeks to flatten the curve. I mean, so much happened in that time. We stopped going to church. We stopped doing business, you know, out there in in the public. People were uh, pushed into bankruptcy because their businesses were deemed non-essential. Like, you know, you know the story, right? But have you really thought about just how out of tune that particular symphony sounded as it began a year ago? Do you remember how discordant the notes were? How, how it was like fingernails on a chalkboard as you started to contemplate some of the things that were taking place? And look, we, we had the unknown ahead of us, so it's not like we were operating with, with the hindsight that we have today. So cut yourself some slack if you feel like, well, I was duped. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, so was everybody else, or a lot of people were. But one of the things that uh, has, has apparently become very ingrained in our psyche and this is true not just in America, but I think in many places around the world, is the importance of wearing that mask. You've got to put that mask on. And even now, as the mask uh, mandates are starting to evaporate, there's still a lot of pushback. I'm grateful for articles like the one I found from Thomas L. Knapp. This is from everythingvoluntary.com. And look, okay, so I'm going to just tell you, friend, there's a little hyperbole here, but... Uh, 
he, he, Thomas Knapp makes a really good point. The title of this piece is Mask Mandates, Pope Joe versus the Science. And he starts with a quote from President Biden. Look, I hope everybody's realized by now these masks make a difference, said President Joe Biden, in response to the lifting of mask mandates in Texas and Mississippi. The last thing we need is Neanderthal thinking that as vaccines roll out, everything's fine. Take off your mask. Forget it. It still matters. Now, Thomas Knapp says Biden's statement abandons the science in at least two ways. Firstly, Neanderthals appear to have been about as smart as their Cro-Magnon counterparts, our most direct ancestors, though many humans still have some Neanderthal ancestry as well. By the way, I believe in my DNA profile when I checked it with 23andMe, yep, I've got some Neanderthal too, so I'm proud of it. Back off, Mr. Biden. Anyway, more importantly, published peer-reviewed scientific studies have yet to demonstrate any significant impact on, of masks on the spread of viral disease. In other words, the science doesn't say that masks make a difference. And I'm going to go into some detail on this, by the way, a little bit later on in this hour, because the CDC itself, yes, the government agency, the CDC, is actually in danger of being deplatformed from Facebook and from uh, Google for publishing a report that is heretical because it addresses, well, how effective are the masks? According to their data, it's not very effective at all. Back to Thomas L. Knapp's article. He says, it's important to remember that correlation and causation are not the same thing. And there can be many factors involved, but... He says, let's look at some raw information. America's two most locked down and masked up areas, or masked up states rather, New Jersey and New York, are also the two hardest hit. They've suffered respectively 264 and 245 COVID-19 deaths per 100,000 population. Meanwhile, Florida, where there's no statewide mask mandate and where local authorities are forbidden by state law to enforce mandates on individuals with arrests and fines, is in far better shape at 146 deaths per 100,000 population. Texas, which has been slightly more authoritarian on COVID-19 than Florida, is also in slightly worse shape than Florida, but far better shape than New York or New Jersey at 155 deaths per 100,000 population. Missouri, which seemed ultra-casual about masking when Thomas Knapp visited last August for his mother's funeral, by the way, she caught COVID-19 in a locked-down, masked-up nursing home. And Missouri's doing even better than Florida at 140 deaths per 100,000 population. Now, Thomas Knapp says, like I said, correlation is not causation. He says there could be many reasons for those differences, including, but not limited to, climate, population density, prevalent disease strain, etc. But for the same reason, what there is, what there is not is anything approaching certainty that masks in general, or mask mandates in particular, save lives. In fact, he says if there's a plausible connection to be drawn at all, it's that they don't. This time last year, U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams was scolding Americans to stop buying up masks while the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Director, Dr. Anthony Fauci, was telling 60 Minutes, there's no reason to be walking around with a mask. Wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better. It might even block a droplet, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. Well, believe it or not, Adams and Fauci were right back then before politics pushed them away from the truth. 
So in the future, the most interesting topic related to COVID-19 will probably be not the disease itself, but the question of how an initially voluntary and seemingly common sense measure snowballed into a fad driven by politically cultivated mass hysteria, then into only what can be described as a government establishment of religion. Thomas Knapp says the cult of the sacred mask is is disintegrating. Rather, Joe Biden should resign its ceremonial papacy and focus on merely being president. Now, I'll grant you, there's, there's a bit of hyperbole in what he's saying, but I also think there's a great deal of truth in what he's saying. And I just have to wonder how many people are willing to, to dig, to look at the data. I still stand by my assertion that one of the most reliable sources I have found has been the, the scholars and the writers and the people who, the economists, who are crunching the numbers, the actual data at the American Institute for Economic Research. And that's not to say that they're all marching in lockstep, but they have made, I think, a very, very powerful case against the official narrative, which is we must do what Dr. Fauci says. And what was the thing I saw earlier today? This one just chilled me to the bone. Um, It was a, a press release from CNN. It was actually a tweet that they had released. Well, the Centers for Disease Control are now saying that people who are fully vaccinated may now have some limited freedoms, are being given limited freedoms to associate with others. And I just had to go, the CDC is, CNN's informing us, the CDC is now giving us limited freedoms. Yeah, I I know, the the little shiver of uh, anger that went up your back, like, really? They're going to give me my limited freedoms? I don't think so. I don't think so. My freedoms did not originate with the Centers for Disease Control. In fact, they didn't originate with any organization or man-made institution. No, sir. My, uh, My freedoms originate with the fact that I am a created being. Now, in my case, I say my, my freedoms are God-given. And that doesn't mean that I can go do whatever I want to anybody without any consequence. I have to respect the rights of others, after all. But I will not pretend that my natural rights are somehow a gift from the political or the medical class. Well, I know darn well that they aren't. And that's, that's where the friction's coming from here, folks. We're going to dive into this on the other side of the break. Back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. I'm going to be spending a fair amount of time on uh, COVID today just because this is the one-year anniversary of the real craziness kicking off. And I'm not trying to dredge up a lot of unpleasant memories, but I am hoping that you remember how unnatural it felt and, and just how weird it felt to see our world slowly but surely turned on its head in an effort to fight a virus. This is not to suggest that nothing should have been done or that people shouldn't have taken proactive you know, measures to uh, minimize their risk. But I'm definitely going to try to make the case that the more politicized this issue became, the more it became a tool for mischief in the hands of power seekers and op- opportunists. And that's entirely unacceptable. 
Now, as the mask mandates start to dissipate, we're starting to see a lot of uh, damage control being done by mass media and certain medical authoritarians. Got a great article here from Simon Black. This is from the sovereignman.com. I'm sorry, sovereignman.com. And <clears throat> Simon Black notes that even the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is about to be punished for heresy by Facebook and Google. Why? Well, because the CDC has released a heretical report about mask wearing that flies in the face of the COVID face mask orthodoxy. The article says on Friday afternoon, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, still called the CDC, even though they added a P, released a heretical report about mask wearing and COVID-19. The report, authored by at least a dozen medical doctors, Ph.D. researchers, and bizarrely, a handful of attorneys, examined how mask mandates across the U.S. affected COVID cases and death rates. Now, Simon Black says you'd think with all the media propaganda about mask effectiveness and all the virtue signaling and politicians and reporters appearing on live TV wearing their masks, that the data would prove incontrovertibly and overwhelmingly that masks have saved the world. But that's not what the report says. According to the CDC's analysis, between March 1st and December 31st last year, statewide mask mandates were in 2,313 of the 3,142 counties in the United States. Looking at the county-by-county data, the CDC concludes that mask mandates were associated with an average 1.32% decrease in the growth rates of COVID-19 cases and deaths during the first 100 days after the mask policy was implemented. Now, Simon Black says, wait, what? Only 1.32%? Yeah. He says, you read that correctly. They didn't misplace the decimal. According to the federal government agency that's responsible for managing the COVID-1984 pandemic, the difference between mask mandates and no mask mandate is literally just a 1.32% difference. And he points out, bear in mind, he says, it's entirely possible that the real figure is even lower than that, given all the questionable COVID statistics. For example, the CDC reports that influenza cases in the United States have dropped to almost zero in the 2020-2021 flu season, down from 56 million the previous year. And his comment is, it's amazing they expect anyone to take this data seriously. Are we honestly supposed to believe the flu has been eradicated, or is it possible that just maybe at least some influenza cases have been misdiagnosed as COVID. Because if that's the case, then the real impact of masks on COVID growth rates is potentially much lower than 1.32%. Listen to this sleight of hand here, though. This is rhetorical sleight of hand. He says, even the CDC seems to understand this because at the end of its report, they insipidly conclude by stating that mask mandates have the potential to slow the spread of COVID-19. Really? Simon Black says, potential. That's heresy, and it's an obvious contradiction to World Health Organization guidance. He says, it makes me wonder if uh, Google and Facebook are gearing up to censor this report, given that they've appointed themselves as the Ministry of Truth. Frankly, it's pretty incredible that the data was too weak for the CDC to make a clear assertion about the benefits of mask mandates. 
Now, he does have this in ellipses underneath. He says, though, I did say there were a couple of lawyers who co-authored this paper, paper, and using noncommittal language like potential certainly sounds like typical weasel lawyer speak. Now, he says, please don't misunderstand the point of this letter. I'm not here to bash masks or say they don't work or go on some anti-mask rant. The point is, he says, I'm pro-data and pro-reason. Because public health policies come with consequences. There are always costs and there are, hopefully, benefits. Well, the CDC has just published an official analysis of the benefits quantified at precisely 1.32%. So what are the costs of their decisions? Well, there's plenty of data about that, too. For example, a recent study published earlier this month in the premier scientific journal Nature shows that Americans who wear masks are more likely to engage in riskier activities, you know, like leaving the house. The study concludes that mask mandates lead to risk compensation behavior, and mask wearers spend 11 to 24 fewer minutes at home on average and increase visits to some commercial locations, most notably restaurants, which are a high-risk location. Now, other consequences are more grim. There have been several studies which chronicle the alarming rise in severe mental health issues, including a spike in youth suicide as a result of various public health policies, including mask mandates and lockdowns. For example, another study published in Nature from early January reported that in late 2020, suicide rates among children in Japan jumped 49%. And the U.S. government's Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service reported an incredible 890% increase in call volume to its nationwide suicide hotline last April. And then there are the the economic consequences to consider. Do mask mandates boost the economy? by giving more people more confidence to go out and spend? Or do mask mandates compel more people to stay at home to avoid the hassle and hence reduce economic activity? Simon Black says there's no conclusive analysis on the subject, but you'd think that policymakers would want to know. You'd think that they would look at all the data, all the pros and cons, economic consequences, public health consequences, and then make an informed, rational decision. But that doesn't seem to happen anymore. There can be no rational discourse on the topic. You're not allowed to ask any questions or express any intellectual dissent. Otherwise, you'll be denounced as a conspiracy theorist. You have one job. Obey. See, it's not even about trusting the science anymore, as we've been told to do over and over again during the pandemic. Because now, the science tells us that mask mandates have the potential to reduce COVID growth rates by 1.32%. Not that you'll hear this in the media. There actually was a bonanza of coverage over the weekend about the CDC's new report. Listen to this spin. The Washington Post headline read, After states lift restrictions, CDC says mask mandates can reduce deaths. Here's the Washington Times. Wearing masks, the CDC study reported, was linked to fewer infections with the coronavirus and COVID-19 deaths. NBC called the report, Strong evidence that mask mandates can slow the spread of coronavirus. But very little of the media coverage bothered to mention the real data. In other words, the marginal 1.32% reduction in growth rates. Are you starting to see the picture? Simon Black says, just like the CDC's influenza data, it's incredible that the media expects to be taken seriously or that they pass themselves off as an objective, unbiased source of information. So why am I sharing this with you? 
I mean, do I really expect you to sit there and pour over all the data and, you know, come to these conclusions yourself? Actually, you know, if it's something that matters enough to you, yes, I would expect you to, you know, to buckle down and do your own research. But more than anything, I'm simply trying to introduce the idea that maybe it's okay to question some of these official pronouncements that have been uttered with such gravity and with with such somberness as to persuade us to give up more and more of our freedoms. Because it turns out that once an issue like this becomes politicized, fudging the facts, fudging the numbers, spinning it in a favorable direction is a little bit too much for the power seekers and the opportunists to resist. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Now, it may feel like I'm piling on here a little bit, but uh, I'm going to share at least an excerpt here from an article from Jeffrey Tucker. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And we'll strongly recommend take a look at it, read it in its entirety. I think this is actually one of the positive side effects of everything that's happened in the last year. And that is, there is a collapse of trust in public health. Now, why would I think that that's a good thing? Well, I'm hoping it's not a lasting thing. I'm hoping that uh, public health authorities can redeem themselves and come back to the point where they're actually giving us factual information, uh, offering their best recommendations, and then allowing us to decide what is our best course of action to to follow. But that's not going to happen until we have uh, successfully conducted a separation of medicine and state and uh, and stopped giving authoritarians something to, to attach their agenda to. So this is good news. Jeffrey Tucker says, maybe you've noticed the rise in public incredulity toward the coronavirus narrative that you hear all day from the mainstream media. More doubts, more opposition, more protests, and far less trust. Well, he says you're hardly alone. What began as a spark in the spring of 2020 is now a raging fire. Try as they might to put it out, it's burning hotter and higher than ever before. The data are already in, and the lockdown elites are getting worried. Rightly so. The great epidemiologist Donald Henderson in 2006 made two firm predictions of the consequences of lockdowns. Remember, this was in 2006. First, he said doing so would have no benefit in terms of disease mitigation. Indeed, lockdowns did not work. Second, he said that doing so would result in discrediting public health and cause a loss of public trust in government. The loss in public trust, not just officials, but also in media, is palpably obvious. Jeff Tucker says, turn your attention to a new roundup of surveys published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It specifically relates to vaccines, but the results reflect a much broader loss of trust in general. Indeed, the surprising lack of public enthusiasm for the vaccines is but a symptom of a much larger problem. From the New England Journal of Medicine, quote, However, despite scholarship emphasizing the role of trust in institutions to provide relevant information, polls suggest that sources of technical information about safety are not greatly trusted. Specifically, there's limited trust in the media or pharmaceutical companies to provide COVID-19 vaccine information. 
As few as 16 and 20% of respondents, respectively, say they have either a great deal or quite a bit of trust in these organizations to provide such information. The public only has moderate trust in information provided by the Food and Drug Administration. End quote. Think about what that means. Jeffrey Tucker says the loss of trust was triggered by using an egregious and destructive means, lockdowns, in order to somehow achieve the unachievable. That is the widespread control, uh, the control rather, of a widespread respiratory virus with severe outcomes for the elderly and sick, but which is mostly mild for everyone else. Now, it so happened that SARS-CoV-2 was not the universally deadly plague it was presumed to be one year ago. These measures were so, so these measures were wildly disproportionate. Even if the pandemic had been as grim as the models predicted, there is no evidence in the historical record of lockdowns doing anything about a virus except to disrupt and destroy social and market functioning in a way that makes dealing with severe health outcomes even more difficult. And consider one huge and unprecedented mitigation mitigation measure deployed last year, the stay-at-home order. Most states imposed them and enforced them with police power. It was not that different from near-universal house arrest right here in the United States. And the claim was that this would slow or stop the spread or somehow cause the virus to be controlled, resulting in fewer severe disease outcomes. The propaganda became outrageous at points, with signs everywhere ordering people to stay home and save lives, as if leaving your house would result in lives lost. People undertook enormous personal sacrifices to comply, at great personal expense. The economic costs were huge, but so were the psychological and social costs. The result was an epidemic in loneliness and a rise in deaths of despair. And Jeff Tucker asks the question, how did it work? Well, a new study in Nature by four epidemiologists look at, looked at the experience of 87 countries with a variety of policies, some loose and some extreme in stringency. They sought to correlate stay-at-home orders with virus control. And the results? They were unable to do so. The relationship does not exist, which is to say that it is consistent with randomness. The policy was worse than useless. So what do you think of that? Now, Jeff Tucker has a link here to the 31st study that the American Institute for Amer- the American Institute for Economic Research has assembled using data nationally and internationally showing that lockdowns achieve nothing and cost everything. And he says you're welcome to peruse that list, share it with your friends, will be astonished or maybe not to discover that public health edicts were unscientific and pointlessly brutal. All that sacrifice for nothing. And it raises the question, how many other things did public health authority get wrong? He goes into more details here. I'm going to let you discover them for yourself, but he's got the charts and the graphs to back it up. The bottom line is this. There is a potential social cost to this loss in trust in public health. Public health in the last century largely did good for humanity, with its emphasis on holistic perspectives on human well-being, the distribution of therapeutics and vaccines, the education on clean water and wise disease mitigation, its focus on rational science and calm over disease panic and so much more. With lockdowns and the tremendous public confusion sown by so many, this entire well-deserved reputation for science in the public interest is in tatters. I mean, that's a... I I, I don't think... This is not just a case of, wow, well, Jeffrey Tucker must have been really mad when he sat down and wrote this. I've been reading this guy's uh, 
his articles on COVID and on the, the response, the official government response, for about a year now. And Tucker, to his credit, was one of the people who was warning well ahead of time the way that they're approaching this is not only going to be ineffective, but it's it's going to be very costly. And and unlike a lot of people, I, I just I have respect for Jeff Tucker's willingness to dig in and try to understand a subject which he really didn't understand prior to this. I mean, he did the research. He did the hard work of trying to understand this and go to the best sources he could find that weren't attached to some agenda. And I think the whole, the whole staff there at uh, the American Institute for Economic Research has done us a tremendous service. But it comes at the cost of it will shake your faith in certain governmental agencies and certain public health directives that uh, have been issued over the last year. And to that, I can only say it's a shame it didn't shake more people's faith a whole lot sooner. Maybe we could have been spared some of the, uh, some of the, the difficulties. All right, I'm going to shift gears here for a minute, and I want to talk about something that uh, this is very close to home to me, because what I'm trying to do, more so than to tell you everything that you must believe, I'm not the New York Times after all, but I'm definitely trying to convince people that it is okay. In fact, it is actually desirable to question the official narrative. I don't think we realize sometimes how much propaganda is being um, shot at us 24-7. And it's coming at us from all different angles. And so much of it isn't really even just, you know, bald-faced lies, although there's a lot of that going on, too. That's that's where gaslighting comes in. But a lot of it has to do with uh, propaganda that just seeks to keep us a few degrees off, you know, a true course so that we can't really make good, informed decisions. And one of the places where I'm seeing this is in what our government is doing just out of view, by which I mean overseas. With all the stuff going on here at home, maybe we get a little bit uh, uh, nonchalant about uh, whatever is happening in terms of foreign policy. Well, if you were noticing in, in the last week or so, we uh, got a got a little bit of a wake-up call in that uh, the president authorized bombing in Syria and then uh, talked about how, well, this is something that was done to protect the American people. This is a Twitter post by Secretary of State Tony Blinken. Listen to this. We're going to dissect it when we come back in just a moment. He says, we will never hesitate to use force when American lives and vital interests are at stake. But we will do so only when the objectives are clear and achievable, consistent with our values and laws, and with the American people's informed consent, together with diplomacy. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says pretty much, like pretty much everything said by Blinken, and indeed every U.S. Secretary of State, that tweet is an absolute lie. And she goes into details in, in this article. We'll, we'll touch on it coming up here in the next segment. Bombing Syria, why we were just protecting American lives and vital interests and doing it with the American people's informed consent. Do you realize that when you are, uh, when, when, when what's being done to you or your understanding of what's being done is affected by propaganda, you can't have conformed consent. In fact, consent that's manufactured by propaganda is the opposite of informed consent. And Caitlin Johnstone does a marvelous job of uh, revealing that for what it is. It's a snow job. We'll talk about it just the other side of these commercials.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Sharing with you right now an article from Caitlin Johnstone. Consent that's manufactured by propaganda is not informed consent. And she starts with a Twitter, a Twitter post by uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken. And this is referring to the, uh, to the air raids that were done uh, on Syria last week that, uh, you know, I, this is really hard for me because I, I have been a very staunch anti-interventionist, well, for quite some time, but it really kicked in about 20 years ago, especially following 9-11 when I realized, wait a minute, all those lofty principles about, uh, you know, we obey the Constitution and we keep government limited and we only look out, you know, for America's interests. Yeah, that all went out the window. So when Tony Blinken says, we will never hesitate to use force when American lives and vital interests are at stake, but we will do so only when the objectives are clear and achievable, consistent with our values and laws and with the American people's informed consent, together with diplomacy. Here's how Caitlin Johnstone responds. She says, firstly, U.S. military force is never used to protect American lives in modern times, unless you count the lives of U.S. troops and mercenaries in foreign lands they have no business occupying in the first place. I know that's a painful truth, but that is a truth. She says the U.S. military is never used to defend American lives against an invading enemy force. That simply doesn't happen in our current world order. It is only ever used to protect the agenda of the unipolar planetary domination, which would be the vital interests of which Blinken obliquely refers to above. Secondly, she says, Blinken's claim that the Biden administration will never use military force without the American people's informed consent has already been blatantly invalidated by Biden's airstrikes on Syria. The American people never gave their consent to those airstrikes, informed or uninformed. A nation the U.S. has invaded, Syria, was bombed because troops were being attacked in a second nation that the U.S. invaded, Iraq, on the completely unproven claim that a third country against whom the U.S. is currently waging economic warfare, Iran, supported those attacks. At no time were the people asked for their consent to this, and at no time was any attempt made to ensure that they were informed of the situation before it happens. Or before it happened, rather. Thirdly, she points out, U.S. military force is never, ever conducted with the American people's informed consent. Literally never. Consent is always manufactured for U.S. wars by lies and mass media propaganda, 100% of the time, without exception. The bigger the military operation, the more egregious the deceit used to manufacture consent for it. Even in relatively peaceful times, when the U.S. is merely raining dozens of bombs and missiles per day on foreign soil, Americans are subject to a nonstop deluge of distorted and outright false narratives about the military and the nations it targets for destruction. Consent that has been artificially manufactured by propaganda, she says, is not informed consent. Any more than sex with someone who's been dosed with rohypnol is consensual sex. U.S. imperialism does not rely on informed consent. It relies on disinformed consent. Consent for it is manufactured by disinformation. Informed consent plays no role whatsoever in the use of the U.S. military force, nor indeed in any other major aspect of the be or behavior of the behavior of the U.S. or its allies. 
Now, she goes into further detail here. I'm going to let you uh, check it out for yourself. You'll find the link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I think she makes a pretty good case of how that U.S. centralized power alliance stays propped up by a relentless deluge of mass-scale psyops. All the consent for its key pillars of imperialism, capitalism, electoral politics, consent for all of these is constantly being manufactured by plutocratic news media, by television, by movies. By the way, what she refers to as capitalism is not free market capitalism. It's, it's the crony capitalism that, that uh, I think most of us find distasteful. But it illustrates the importance of owning your own worldview. Refusing to let someone spoon-feed you pablum because, oh, this is all you can handle, sweetheart. Just take this and, you know, you you can work yourself up to, to becoming a very critical and independent thinker. But it takes time and it takes some effort. But this should illustrate why you need to be able to do this because otherwise you will have... Leaders t- saying that, uh, well, you know, we just, we did this with your consent, your, your consent, rather. You're informed on this. You, you're on board when we've done no such thing. All right, I'm going to shift gears here. I want to give you some good news. I feel like I've had, I've had uh, a fair amount of uh, not-so-good news. Let's talk about some of the good news. Here's an article from the Foundation for Economic Education from Patrick Carroll. Walmart and Costco just gave over 400,000 workers a raise despite... No official minimum wage increase. And this article explains why. In a nutshell, it's because the free market, not the government, is what truly uplifts workers in the long run. And in this case, Patrick Carroll says, imagine you're an employee at Walmart. Maybe you're a single mom working to pay the bills or a teenager looking to get work experience. The past year has been rough for you and your colleagues, but you've all persevered and pushed through despite the difficult circumstances. Now, Imagine that you walk into work one day and find out that you're getting a raise, even though you didn't ask for one. That was what roughly 425,000 Walmart employees experienced in February. Walmart's average hourly wage used to be $14 an hour back in January of 2020, but with these new raises, they plan to boost that average to over $15 per hour. And this move comes on the heels of increasing demand for household goods due to COVID-19, especially through online orders. But Walmart's not the only large employer handing out raises. On February 25th, Costco announced it would be raising wages for its lowest paid hourly workers, setting a new company-wide minimum of $16 per hour. CEO Craig Jelinek uh, said it takes a lot of time to interview and find employees. We want people to stay with us. Now, what's conspicuously absent from these raises is any change in federal minimum wage law. While a federal $15 minimum wage was originally in President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal, by the way, about 90% of that money does nothing for uh, for COVID relief, uh, a Senate official recently ruled that this inclusion didn't comply with Senate budget rules, making it unlikely to pass anytime soon. So if the federal... Minimum wage hasn't gone up and likely won't be going up anytime soon. What exactly is driving Walmart and Costco to hike their wages? The answer, in a word, is competition. Wall Street Journal reports Walmart has been competing with Amazon and others for warehouse workers and other staff that are handling a huge surge in online orders during the pandemic. 
Now, notably, Amazon raised its minimum pay to 15 bucks an hour back in 2018, and both they and Walmart gave out substantial bonuses in 2020. Target also established a minimum hourly pay of $15 last year, so it's clear this is becoming an industry-wide trend. And if you want to understand how competition for labor leads to higher wages, consider a typical hourly Walmart worker. Every time they work, they produce a certain amount of value for Walmart. The value they produce can vary substantially depending on the work they do and the tools and equipment they have access to. But let's assume that for every hour they work, they bring in $17 of additional revenue for Walmart. Economists call this the workers' marginal revenue productivity. Now, if Walmart's only paying them $14 an hour, then Walmart gets a profit of $3 per hour. However, this profit margin creates an opportunity for Amazon. Amazon could outbid Walmart by offering them $15 per hour and still make a profit, albeit a smaller one. So Walmart would need to raise their workers' wages to avoid losing them to Amazon. A worker's marginal revenue productivity can also go up, which would put upward pressure on their wages. So if a worker develops new skills or has access to better tools, for example, they might start producing $20 per hour of value. Under these circumstances, their employer will likely give them a corresponding raise. If the employer doesn't do so, well, then there will be a market incentive for another company to hire them away. I guess the bottom line here is that you're looking at the difference between government solutions versus market solutions. And Patrick Carroll says, while the government approach takes away options from workers, the free market approach gives workers more options. So free market proponents advocate for lower taxes and fewer regulations, not just because that's good for business, but also because it fosters competition for labor and thus creates upward pressure on wages. And what's more, when employers have more resources to invest in capital, such as online infrastructure, instead of having their money taxed away, they can increase the productivity of their workers, which ultimately leads to better compensation. In other words, the recent wage hikes from Walmart and Costco are perfect examples of this phenomenon. And Patrick Carroll says it's a vivid reminder that, in the, free, that the free market, not the government, is what truly uplifts workers in the long run. Of course, there is a link to this article, which you will find in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Be sure to check out the page for uh, resources for wrong thinkers as well. And if this program strikes the right nerve for you, please consider becoming a patron or becoming a monthly sponsor of the show. We'd love your support, and I do appreciate your listenership. This is The Brian Hyde Show.